I'm Chris Mayer, and you're listening to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. The last episode introduced Russian quasi-mercenary organizations, and I said this podcast would fit them into the context of Russian national interests. I'll do that. But first, you may have noticed a change in the bumper music. This is to honor military philosopher Karl von Clausewitz, or, as he's known to Army War College alumni, Uncle Karl. He's best known for the phrase, War is a continuation of policy by other means. The problem is that this line is both a poor translation from the German, and it is taken out of context. The common translation implies that there is a uniquely military solution for a political problem. When Uncle Karl introduced this idea in his work on war, he wrote, War is a continuation of political intercourse with the addition of other means. The difference between what Clausewitz wrote and the common translation is critical. Clausewitz explained, quote, We also want to make it clear that war in itself does not suspend political intercourse or change it into something else entirely. In essentials, that intercourse continues, irrespective of the means it employs, unquote. This proper interpretation is embedded in all of our professional military education. Officers learn that national strategy is the proper employment of all elements of national power. These are diplomatic, informational, economic, and military. Just because we decide to use military force doesn't mean we stop using other elements of national power. In the same way, just because we decide that diplomacy or information operations has the lead, it doesn't mean we can't also use military power. War, the application of decisive military power to force an enemy to comply with our will, is just part of a continuum of national strategy. And, in keeping with that other philosopher of strategy, Sun Tzu, the ideal is to achieve our strategic objectives without firing a shot. The U.S. military is not the only student of Clausewitz. His ideas have been the center of Russian military thinking for almost a century. Certainly, this concept of military power as a continuum rather than as something unto itself is central to the Russian notion of hybrid warfare. Joining me here today is Colonel Robert Waring, U.S. Army retired, who is an instructor at the Army War College. I must point out that his comments here do not necessarily reflect the official position of the Army War College. Hello, Rob. Hello, Chris. So, Colonel Waring, could you explain how, or if, our Clausewitzian construct of using all elements of national power, a construct that has been actual practice of U.S. strategy since the Civil War, differs from the 21st century notion of hybrid warfare? Thanks, Chris. So, before we start discussing hybrid warfare and how it may differ from our Clausewitzian construct, perhaps we should define hybrid warfare. The problem is that there's not really a generally accepted definition it can easily fall into one of those categories of, well, what do you want it to be? Peter Pinjack, in the periodical NATO Review, provided a particularly useful description. Hybrid conflicts involve multi-layered efforts designed to destabilize a functioning state and polarize its society. Unlike conventional warfare, the center of gravity in hybrid warfare is a target population. The adversary tries to influence influential policymakers and key decision makers by combining kinetic operations with subversive efforts. Listening to your description, it seems like this is very similar to Julio Douay and Billy Mitchell. 
They thought that by bombarding the population, the people would become disillusioned and demand an end to the war. It didn't work that way in practice, though. Instead, bombing London, Berlin, and Tokyo only steeled the resolve of the population and, and made them feel part of the fight against the enemy. Do you see similar risks for Russian hybrid warfare? When the population became aware, such as in the U.S. in 2016, Ukraine, and Western Europe, there was a strong adverse reaction. On the other hand, when the source of the information campaign remained hidden, such as with Vietnam, it was successful. Therefore, the aggressor often resorts to clandestine actions to avoid attribution or retribution. So, what you have is the exploitation of a continuum of proxies, disinformation, and other measures short of war. However, the potential for war is always there. This, in turn, increases presence, prestige, and influence in geostrategic areas, whether those areas be the Ukraine, Syria, or even South America. It's a way to get their foot in the door. Now, going back to Clausewitz and employing all the elements in national power, I see hybrid warfare laying neatly within Clausewitz's construct. The only thing new here are the specific tools to accomplish those objectives. The concepts for employing those tools are enduring. New tools include things such as cyber warfare, fake news, and social media. Peter Pinjack's description is especially useful here. His description clearly employs Clausewitz's center of gravity to describe how hybrid warfare is focused upon target population to instill doubt, disillusion, polarization, and insecurity. One may even go as far as to say that hybrid warfare provides a means for economy of force whereby one is able to make more efficient use of the elements of national power without risking the cost of employment of hard military power. Colonel Waring, from your description, the real goal of hybrid warfare seems to be to achieve national objectives while avoiding direct military confrontation with the United States or NATO. This seems that Russian use of private military companies in hybrid warfare is not just an economy of force. It's an example of Clausewitz's description of limited war with its balance of limited means for limited objectives. Certainly, it is very consistent with Clausewitz's limited war. Russian New Generation Warfare, as described by the Army's Asymmetric Warfare Group, seeks to form hybrid units consisting of conventional forces, special operations forces like Spetsnaz, advise and assist company teams, contracted forces, local forces, and private military contractors. The idea here is that Russia can tailor forces to achieve specified goals while simultaneously limiting exposure to risk. Within these hybrid forces, Russia can use arms sales or other economic incentives, which eventually lead to more formal military cooperation agreements. These agreements provide presence, prestige, and influence, and serve to provide a platform to block and discourage U.S. involvement in the region, ultimately gaining maximum benefit with minimal investment or cutting losses early without direct public embarrassment should things go wrong. It helps at this point to review the sequence of events. It begins with Russian military sales to a developing state. Now, like Henry Hill and the Music Man, these governments have no technical expertise to use this equipment or a realistic means to pay. This is where the private military companies come in. They receive, train, and equip the security forces of the developing state. 
They also secure access to natural resources, which are made available to Russian oligarchs under an economic cooperation agreement to pay for the private military companies and to act as collateral against the cost of the military hardware. Securing these resources may involve combat. If this phase is successful, military technical cooperation agreement follows. This brings in Russian military forces. As the Russian footprint expands and the developing state is further in debt to Russia, a full military cooperation agreement is implemented. This is essentially a full alliance with Russia and places the developing state firmly under Moscow's control. Looking at it in this context, there's nothing really new about using private military companies to achieve the aims of hybrid warfare. For example, in the 16th century, the economically powerful Strogonov family contracted with a band of Cossacks to force Siberian tribesmen to cooperate with Russian plans to extract natural resources from Siberia. This seems to almost precisely match the model of Russian activities in Africa today. Of course, in the West we have our own examples, privateers at sea, so-called volunteers, and filibusters on land, such as Davy Crockett and his hunting party in Texas, and even mercenaries in the air such as the Flying Tigers or Air America. They all provided governments with a tool to promote strategic objectives without direct involvement of the state or its forces, a tool that could be disavowed, a tool that was expendable if things went wrong. Nonetheless, there is a stark difference between Russia's use of this tool of hybrid warfare and U.S. use of private military and security companies. What these differences are and why they are important will be the topic of the next podcast. I hope you'll come back for that.